Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we're talking a little bit more about Echo with star of the MCU podcast, the Grand Panda Isimo of the Stranded Panda Podcast Network, and really the inspiration for me getting to, into podcasting. So I'm so glad you're here with us, Matthew Carroll. Dude. How are we doing today, Matthew? Very kind intro. It's good to talk to you, Matthew. It's been a, been a, been a while since we've gotten a cast together, so I'm uh, Definitely. excited to chat about this show with you. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And just to give you a little bit of background, uh, I see... I, I imagine there's probably a very small percentage of you who don't know, but Matthew, talk to you, talk to us a little bit about um, the podcast you do, but more importantly, also kind of your background with Marvel, because one of the reasons I wanted you on right now for this is I've been talking a lot about the representation in this show, and, and it'll probably come up, but you are, I think, kind of one of the leading voices out there, at least in my world, about Marvel and the MCU. So what's what's kind of your background with Marvel and and both comics and on screen? Well, I love a connected universe. Always have. Uh, so you know, uh, going way back to uh, pretty much everything I grew up on, I loved a good connected universe. And then uh, when Marvel started doing that on such a big scale with big budgets and uh, a lot of forethought and interesting uh, actors and directors, I I just fell in real hard. And then uh, around Guardians of the Galaxy, we started. So 2014, we started the MCU cast, that Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, if you don't know. Um, and uh, we're over there. We've been doing it for almost, we're on our 10th year and we're nearing our thousandth episode. Um, That's awesome. And so we're, we're hoping, we're hoping we can align those two things. So it's like the 10 year anniversary is right around the thousandth episode. We do a big bonanza, um, but uh, it's coming up. So we got to get on, we got to get on planning that. Uh, but yeah, uh, so, so uh, you've been just talking about this stuff multiple days a week for for 10 years and I love it. Um, I love how deep the universe goes now with so many things and so many different corners of it that have varying mm -hmm. level of canonicity. Um, and so we can kind of just, I, I like being able to like, I love being able to watch uh, Echo and be like, but what if Punisher showed up and did this? You know, like, just like, it's just right. weird. Like, well, is that canon? Maybe, maybe not. Like, let's, <laughs> let's get into it. Um, I, I, lo I love how expansive the world is. And it's just fun to play in that sandbox and speculate and discuss. So, 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 I, and, I, and, and I, even with um, this phase four and phase five haven't been as well received, but I'm in a, I'm in a mindset of they're in a rebuilding time, clearly after mm -hmm. Endgame. And it's just sort of like, it's the, it's the, Growing pains of rebuilding uh, to the to the next big thing, which is probably five years away at this point. So uh, I, I think I think they're in a good place. And just to say, to say where I am at this exact moment, though, have, have you seen have you seen Loki? I have not. Oh, man. Have you seen What If? No, I have not. OK, those two shows combined mm -hmm. have me in an incredibly excited place. That's awesome. For Marvel. That's awesome. I loved them both. And they both had uh, endings that led to sp cool speculation. It just, they just ended well. They ended really, really nice. well. Nice. And then the, they put out the uh, trailer for Echo. Did you see the final trailer for Echo? You don't watch trailers, right? So really? I did not watch trailers, which we'll talk about in a bit, because I feel like I got the best reward in the world for having no idea what was coming in this in this show. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Well, they, they, they had a trailer that dropped for Echo. And after I'm coming off the high of what if, and they had the final trailer drop for Echo, and it was just they just took clips from all of the Daredevil stuff and mm -hmm. showed the story of Matt Murdock and Kingpin and how it intersected with Echo. And then the so the entire trailer was 
like basically saying this is canon with the Netflix stuff. Like you are going to, it is going to be canon. And like that got me really, really pumped. So those three events in, in succession has me on a really high uh, That's level for Marvel right now. Well, and I have to say, I'm feeling in a very similar place coming from a very different direction. Um, and we're going to get into some details, but I think this is kind of a fun place to start, especially with the canonicity of it all, because I want to hear your thoughts on that. I, like I said, I was I was so excited for this show. Um, I think a lot those who are regular listeners to my podcast probably know this, but we may get some new people for this. I think this episode is also going to get rebroadcast in the MCU cast. So for those who don't know, I am myself an amputee um, in the exact same way. I'm, I'm missing a leg below the knee uh, that uh, both the character of Maya Lopez and the actress who plays her, Alakwa Cox, is. And so I was incredibly excited about this show, also trepidatious, and so I didn't want to know anything about it. And I, I, I think people who want to see trailers, that's awesome. And I'm so glad you get that. But I got to have a moment early on of seeing in the background a new person enter the fight in kind of a reddish suit that looked like it might have horns and saying to my partner, is that Daredevil? <laughs> and he'd be like, oh my God, Daredevil's in this. And I had no idea. Yeah, that's um, wonderful. That is wonderful. Yeah, that's something that they did announce when they first announced Echo as a show, that she was going, yeah. that he would appear, and so, so I, I knew that was coming. I didn't know it would be such a small part. I wasn't upset mm-hmm. by it. It, it. I think his role was kind of perfect. It gave. Yeah. They have done the opposite so much with the MCU shows as of late, where they saved the big connection for the end and i think it tends to overshadow the storyline that's happening and this one did it the opposite where they sort of sprinkle in a little mcu connection at the top and then they saved the they they left the finale of this show to be the finale of this show and i think that was way better than things like hawkeye that like you know speaking of echo hawkeye Mm. uh you know i think that show bringing in kingpin in the last episode was like really overshadowed um some yeah. of what was going on there. It's like the, the the story didn't get its resolution like it needed. I think that's so true. And I think one thing I talked about a lot, because one thing I think is worth noting, and again, I think there's no right or wrong in this, just different perspectives. I've definitely been a little bit burnt out by the MCU. And mm-hmm. I'm not one of the haters. Like, you know, people, if they love it, that's awesome. I'm not saying it's all terrible. I just... The couple of things that I saw re- most recently about the MCU, I didn't really love. I loved she- She-Hulk, but... Um, other stuff didn't grab me. Mm-hmm. Secret Invasion, the little I saw, I didn't have any interest. Loki I didn't have much interest. Um, and I was kind of just done with it for a while. And this show to me really, really brought me back, mm. particularly because I felt like this show touched on a lot of the things that I had loved about the Netflix MCU. Yeah. You know, it had a much darker tone. Uh, it was much more street level. Um, to the point where literally when I watched the first couple of minutes, which are this like gor- – we find out it's this gorgeous thing of the uh, Chaktua, uh, sorry, Chakwa um, creation myth. But it's very like mystical and kind of neon-y lights almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's obviously supposed to be like mystical, not actual neon. I had to stop and make sure I was watching the right show. Right, yeah. I thought I had started something else. Um, but, but one of the things I think that really kind of was like, okay, I think they're doing this better was the Daredevil appearance. Because one thing I remember that I'd sometimes been frustrated about was when you get to a point where in the story of the larger universe, it didn't make sense that other characters weren't showing up, Mm. you know? And like the Defenders is one of my favorite examples. 
I don't think Captain America or Iron Man cares if Wilson Fisk is taking over more of the construction industry, you know, or whatever. Right, right, right. But when the hand is trying to raise a dragon and there's earthquakes happening all throughout New York City, I kind of feel like Captain America or Tony Stark or someone else might notice, you know? Yeah. And but but of course having one of them show up at the end of the Defenders would have, as you said, just kind of taken it over. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a there's always if you it's a suspension of disbelief thing, I think. Right. And I think if the show is done well you don't care about that as much because you mm-hmm. can always make up your own headcanon for why someone's not there. Oh, they're on a different sure. mission. They're doing this. Tony's whatever. Tony's in space. Who knows? Like th- right. there's always, that's the thing. Marvel comics has always done this. And if the comic's good, no one's asking that question. If the yeah. show is good, no one's asking that question. It's when you lose your suspension of disbelief because the show is not grabbing you that you start going really it's a dragon. Come on. Where's, where's, but you could easily headcanon like none of those five defenders that were there. No, Tony Stark, none of them, no captain America. No one has their number. You know what I mean? So like, yeah, sure. They could call some organization maybe, but maybe Mm -hmm. they, whatever they, maybe they don't know who they can trust. Blah, blah, blah. There's always headcanon, but like it, it doesn't, uh, it, it only works. That only, I feel like happens when the show isn't grabbing you. And I think defenders is one of those that didn't grab a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think it also may be the difference in how we see these stories. Because for me, even if it's a very good story, I think in part because I didn't grow up reading comic books. So I don't have that kind of like – I haven't been taught how to watch these things. <laughs> um, uh, it, 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 it would pull me out of a story. But to me, my point is – so therefore having – Daredevil is not going to be a main character in the show. But she's fighting Kingpin in New York City. And so it makes sense that Daredevil is going to be there. Yeah. And so to, yeah, to me, that was just the – like, that's the perfect way. Like, in the same way that, like, I feel like if, you know, something pulled them into Harlem, you know, and Luke Cage showing up, mm-hmm. like, it would make a lot of sense. So, yeah, it just gave me a lot of hope about where the MCU is going yeah. and where some of these things. And and I don't know how much you know about Spotlight and their new direction with Spotlight. Do you, I'm sure you noticed when it came on the screen that it said yep. Marvel Spotlight. Um, have you have you researched that at all? Do you know anything about it? Yeah, since this, I did a lot of research and learned okay. that, yeah, it's, it's kind of going to be like – not like the Netflix MCU, but kind of its own, like, it, it's in the same continuity, but it's a little bit more street level, it's a little bit more adult-focused, and it's a yeah. little bit more, like, trying to tell these stories in a connected way. It, well, in an unconnected way is kind of the goal. Like, mm, Oh, yeah, that's a better way to say it. To do a – allow a place for individual stories that don't have to connect, that are smaller. And I think it's right. it's it's so funny because for years we have been begging for connection. We've been begging for those moments that you're talking about where like, why don't they call Captain America? Why don't they call – but like I think if we all look back, like – and I'm changing my stance on this. I've been for years that guy who wants more and more and more connection. But I think that – the the MCU when it was at its height when it's at its like the thing that p- most people remember as the best which is like phase two and three it is they had great things happening in the movies that were very sparsely populated and like they were very connected but they were like every year or two we were getting yeah. like two movies a year or something like that um, and then on TV we were getting these very grounded stories that were not connected at all the the agents of shield Dare, the defenders all the all four, all five of those shows on Netflix they had mm-hmm. almost no connection they were just in the same world and i think the spotlight is sort of bringing that around and saying hey if you want to be a deep fan of marvel and you want to watch everything you can um the one sure. the one thing i think i need they need though the the, the 
the secret sauce of this formula working in an even better way than it worked on in-game is whenever we get the next version of the portal scene where everything's opening and people are coming through, we need to see the characters from Spotlight come onto the big screen at some point. They don't have to yes. be ultra-connected. You don't have to explain who they are, even. Just give us that little bit as fans so we freak out. And the rest of the audience goes, right. oh, I don't know who they are. Oh, well, you don't know who every person yeah. coming through the portals is. You just need that little bit of... That would if, if Daredevil had walked through the screen in the portal scene, it's the only thing that would have made that scene better. You know what I mean? Like it would it yeah. would have increased how good I that mean, is. And I think they even started to do that to me in Spider-Man, where, you know. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Yeah, where Spider-Man needs to find a good lawyer who can help him with stuff about being a superhero. And who does he go to? Matt Murdock. Yeah. If you have no idea who Matt Murdock is, it's just a lawyer who happens to have really good reflexes. Um, yeah, I'm totally with you there. And so – let me actually ask you this then, because I, I've been diving into this a lot. Um, uh, mostly though, my my discussions about Echo and the, and the people I'm following and talking to have been uh, discussions of like the representation in it. And as you would expect with you know most shows where it's a, a brown woman is the star, um, there's a lot of people who are hating on it. There's a lot of people who are loving it and talking about how much they represent it. We'll get more to that in a bit. But I haven't really dealt with the kind of like hardcore Marvel people talking about it much. Hmm. And so I want to ask you about the canonicity of it all, because clearly I think it is like, you know, it is a Charlie Cox daredevil. It's a Vincent mm-hmm. D'Onofrio kingpin. By the way, after what I – that was another reason why it felt like it worked. I felt like I liked kingpin in Hawkeye, but he didn't feel like the same character. This felt much more like the same character. 100%. And I, there, are, there are probably others who are on his level, but I think Vincent D'Onofrio is – in terms of just the body of work of the MCU – at the very highest level of acting performances we have seen in the MCU. He was just incredible, incredible in this. Yeah. Um, and such a, mor- a morally complex character. Um, the thing, though, but I did notice that there were some things that didn't seem to fit with the exact canon of the Defenders universe. Um, and some of them, like, you know, the fact that, like, all of this has already happened, but that now he's starting the process of running for mayor. Um they showed like what I think is supposed to be the painting that reminds him of the wall in the home where he killed his father. Uh, and that in the Netflix, it, it's just kind of a quick flash, but they show him looking at that painting in the last episode. And, you know, in the MC, in the Netflix MCU verse, uh, he, he buys it from Vanessa and that's how he meets Vanessa. And it's a horizontal painting. And in this, it was a vertical painting. And there was just, like one or two other things that, that, kind of got me thinking and because I do think they're going to have a real problem of how do you tell a lot of those stories when in some way you've already told all of those stories going back to, you know, all the stuff that happened in, you know, how is he running for mayor again uh, when he's kind of already done that in the Netflix MCU? I don't know. Talk to like Chris Christie. Yeah, well, right. Okay, like that's, that's the like, thing. Talk to Joe Biden. Like people but, but, run for the same office all the time. And I think the way they should handle it. This well, is what I said on the MCU cast last night. If the next time we see Kingpin, he's already mayor. That's how they should handle it. Like next time we I, see Kingpin, they were talking on that show about how like he's uh, he's an out, we need an outsider. Blah, blah blah. Someone could swing in right now and become mayor. We need that to happen. And then he's like, hmm. And the next time we see him, it's like Daredevil born again. It's two years later, and he's just Mayor Fisk. And like Daredevil's I, having to deal with that. It's a different story, and it's just he ran again. You know, like that's how sure, I think I, they could handle it. I, I think that's true. I, I'm going in a different direction though, because to me. 
the fact that he was looking at it as though like he'd never thought of this happening um as well the, the vertical painting to me was the most obvious but there were some other things like that i didn't see um, the painting when, when did they show the painting because when he you're talking about in his dream i think so in his dream that was the actual wall it may have looked like the painting. I think it may have looked, but it was the wall he was staring at. So he's in his original bedroom in the dream, um, and he's looking at yeah, the wall. Yeah, no, there's another scene where it looked like it was a very. It had like a frame around it and stuff. But my, okay, my point with all this being, it it feels like trying to say this is the exact same canon canon of all the stuff we already saw feels like it's going to be problematic just because there's so many story beats that we've already seen. What I'm wondering is. We now are in a multiverse. Are they going to perhaps say that the Netflix Defenders took place in a different part of the multiverse? And so what we're seeing here in this version, in the 616 or whatever it is that they're describing it as for for the MCU, it's the same Daredevil, it's the same Kingpin, and it may well be the same Luke Cage and all these other people. But by saying this is a different continuity, a different canon – that way they're not tied to the exact details of the Netflix. Right. They're not tied to the exact casting. Um, it, whether – like I, it felt to me like they were setting that up in this. Whether or not you think that though, do you think that that is a possible way they're going with all this? I think that is absolutely a possible way they could go. I think that this show makes that less likely, not more. I think those mm. smaller details that you're talking about – I mean Fisk running for mayor is not a small detail – um, but it's like right. an entire season of the show, <laughs> but right. I do think that like, they could easily say he just ran again. And this time he won, like he, they, last time they weren't looking for an outsider. The city was, and then now he sees his opportunity. He's like, Oh, I can do that thing. I always wanted to do. Um, yeah. but, but the vertical versus horizontal thing, I'd have to see the screenshots. I'm looking it up online. I'm not seeing that like as a, okay. have, have you seen, I, I guess like, uh, yeah, it's I, entirely I, possible that you're right. I misunderstood it uh, and saw that. So I don't want that to be the thing it, it hangs on. For me, it's more that like in this, he felt to me like a businessman who is very well respected in the community and pretty corrupt already. But like, you know, he has all this power and influence over the cops, as we see. Right. He has all this power and influence with the casinos in ways that I feel like if he's already been to jail – and had everything revealed about him the way Karen Page and Matt Murdock and Foggy right. did in uh, the shows doesn't really work. I don't think that's true. Um, okay. And, and I just don't think like – I think just the way – the entirety of season three was about that exact dichotomy. Like right. Matt Murdock, Karen Page, they're all yelling about how he's a corrupt criminal and like trying to stop him. And half of the city is like – Oh yeah, he's corrupt the way we like, and you can absolutely see, you know, and you could see it mirroring our world today. Oh look, they're trying to put him on trial. That just makes us like him more. Like I just think it. I think they are yeah, setting up. Okay, that's fair. I gotta withdraw that point. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they're just setting up a perfect parallel to what's happening in our world, and they're trying to tell a story that is going to be like very on the nose about what if you know, like what if a corrupt politician just keeps on being corrupt and people won't believe 
believe it. And what does Daredevil do? Because now he's the mayor. He he had his chance to kill him in that hotel room, and he chose yeah. not to. And that was the victory of season three, him overcoming his rage. And now he's going to see the result of not doing the Punisher thing. And now he's the mayor. Now he's America's mayor. Now he's running for president. Like, whatever they want to do with it. And then he's, like, catapulted into so much power. And then you could, you could tie that into the Thunderbolts, which is something Marvel's yeah. coming out with in a few years. You could have it, like... He's the power center that's like sort of corrupting an Avengers like team, you know, like it could it could be huge. King Kingpin could be an even bigger character and I'd love it. If nothing else, it draws a personal, a perfect connection between Daredevil and Echo Mm -hmm. because she also had the chance to kill him. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So totally. Yeah. Yeah. I I can see it working either way. So I'll be very curious to see it. I, I will admit that like. The airplane running for mayor scene was great. Mm-hmm. I was really hoping to see Foggy or Karen or even the Punisher kind of sitting down with Echo yes. and being like, so we have a friend in common or we have a problem in common. Right. Or yeah, like yeah. That. We, but, we, we, we had yeah. a lot of those discussions last night, like who we would have. Uh, one of the things we did, uh, we, we actually haven't even released our episodes yet. Uh, we're, we're, I'm going to release them to the patrons today and they'll be up later, yep. later this week because we, we just had to release them in a certain way. But um, uh. We had a we had a big like in our episode four we bet on like okay are we going to see someone else we haven't seen like is someone going to show up and like then we all took yeah. bets on like who's going to show up if if and it turned out to be nobody but um, <laughs> it was I love that last scene I think it's um, yeah. it's perfect because it well first of all also this last scene this this kingpin being like mayor or possibly mayor or running for mayor mm-hmm. also has to be tied into the fact that Maya did some fancy magic to heal his pain and who does that make kingpin and then like if you've got a if you've got a daredevil who's regretting not killing him when he had the chance and an echo who's and like then they're looking at him and he's doing terrible things as mayor but also like what if he's what if he's not doing terrible things as mayor what if he's kind of walking the line because he's had his pain healed and now he's like you have to believe as the what if what if they convince us as the audience that Fisk isn't such a bad guy anymore, and then we have to take the ride where we're kind of disagreeing with Matt. Like I love the yeah. fact that it could all it could go any way, and the morality of it could be really really blurry. I mean that's why I've always said that Daredevil season one was a big part of starting this podcast, that and Marvel Civil War, because for me those are both stories that are so morally gray. Mm-hmm. Like I, I've often said, I think Daredevil season one is kind of like. 51% a Daredevil origin story and 49% like it could be so close to a Kingpin origin story. Absolutely. I mean it is, but you know in terms of him being the more heroic and as you kind of alluded to, I think even Kingpin as he is, like a lot of people in this country and in this world would think like yeah, that's what we need. You yeah. know, he is the and here's my take on what Echo did and we'll definitely get to Echo herself in in just a moment, but I want to talk more about Kingpin because I think his his portrayal in this is so well done and so good and so more like – I think it would be so easy to be like, oh, he's just manipulating Maya the whole time. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that for a second. I think he is 100% he feels a family connection to her and he very much loves her and wants to keep her safe. He just doesn't – A, he doesn't really know how to do that yeah. but also like – you know, like to me, the scene with the ice cream vendor is so perfect because – yeah. I mean, you're you're now a parent, Matt, so you can speak to this even more than I could. But like when I have friends who I know have like reasons that they would get teased or harassed and I see that happen, 
there is a part of me that wants to get violent and go hurt sure, that person. Yeah. And A, I'm disabled myself and have never learned how to fight, so I couldn't do it anyway. But like also <laughs> I just I think it's the wrong thing to do. But like to me, part of what made that scene with the ice cream guy so perfect and like so uncomfortable is that I was like, yeah, get him. Mm-hmm. And then looking at how intense it was getting. And then when, you know, little Maya shows up, I was like, oh, God, how traumatic is this going to be for her? And my partner said, I hope she kicks him. And I was like, no. Yeah, I kind of hope so, too. But no, that's terrible. And then, of course, she does kick mm-hmm. him. And it's just – yeah, okay. So, I've got – I'm going to go in a different direction with this. But let's just talk about that. Yeah, what was your take on that scene and kind of the whole – his feelings with Maya in general? Well, they're two very different – what I love about this show – is it and the, and you mentioned it in Daredevil being a great origin story for Fisk. This is another great Fisk story sitting on top of this Echo story, and it's it, it's great for both of them. And that yeah. scene means something different in both of their tales. Um, it is Fisk had a lot of pain and trauma, and he is a broken, broken person who doesn't understand love. And that hammer represents something really dark to him, but he thinks it represents freedom. We'll talk about the hammer scene. The hammer scene is, I yeah. think, one of the most interesting scenes in the whole show. But that is the scene we're talking about. Um, Fisk, one of the things that for, let me talk about it for Maya first. I'll just have to pick, yeah. pick a person here. Maya, for me, it was interesting to think about that scene. I think it was episode four that it started. And then the fifth scene, which is before her mother dies, and it mm. kind of shows she, out of curiosity and like adventure, shoots a baby, shoots a bird with the with the rock, right? Um, and then she immediately has all this empathy for the bird, the hurting bird, and wants to go like see it saved. But then after her mother dies, she has no empathy. Like the reason. Fisk is fearful when of him seeing her. It's because children have an innate empathy when they see someone hurt, and that they right. and and he's scared that he'll see her. Fisk as the monster who hurt uh, this poor vendor, even if he was the bad guy in this moment, you know. Um, right. But she, after her mother dies, has that same trauma, and she's like, "I have I have trauma, and I don't know how to I don't know how to heal," and now. I, she's losing her empathy. And I think that's like, I think that's very deliberate thing. So for her, I think that moment is showing her sort of beginning down sort of a dark path, you know? And for Fisk, it's this moment of, I found someone broken like me. I found someone that also, you know, at that young age, like at my young age, when I was young, I killed my father with a hammer. This child sees this bloody mess on the ground, breathing or not, can't even tell, blood dripping down his face and just wants to kick him. And she, he sees himself in her. So I, I agree with you. I don't think that that scene is um, a, like, I don't, sorry, blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't think that scene is, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, my brain is spacing. Edit, edit, edit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I, I think we you're, are you trying to say that you don't think that scene is him manipul- trying to manipulate yeah, yeah. her? Except, yeah. I think that scene. I don't think that scene is showing us a Fisk that is. I don't think this whole show is him manipulating her because I think he genuinely 
needs someone who understands him. It's the same reason he loves Vanessa. Mm. Vanessa the same reason Vanessa works is because when she finds out, when he blows up all the Russians in season one of Daredevil and she sees him do it, she doesn't turn away. She turns toward yeah. him. She she wants to be with him because of the power he's he's projecting. But she is just like him and doesn't turn away like Vanessa doesn't yeah. turn away from the horrible things that Fist does. I mean in some ways I feel like, and I never really put it together until I just heard you describe it so well, the Echo Fisk relationship is very similar to the darker tellings of the Batman-Robin relationship. Mm. You know, if you look at things like Titans and some other things that are really from Dick Grayson's perspective, where there's an extent to which, like, Bruce Wayne both, he recognizes, yeah, that that Dick Grayson is in a similar place, and a part of him wants to prevent that, but then when he realized, when like Dick Grayson sees what what Bruce Wayne Batman is doing, he's kind of like, okay, well, I guess he is going to be like me, and so I need to train him in that regard. Man, that is and- a great point. That's a really, really solid point. They both lost. Uh, parents in traumatic ways. They both, like, well, one killed parents, but you know, it, it is very much the dark side of that. I love that. Yeah. And I think part of it is also to me, I think you're completely right about how Maya has lost empathy. And I think one of the, I think the loss of her mother is a big part of it. But I also think when basically her grandmother is in so much pain and mm. so much anger over the loss of her own daughter, that her grandmother can't have empathy for it. I think from Maya's perspective, she sees a total lack of empathy from her grandmother. Yeah. You know, and, and then she goes to the school and, and there, a lack of empathy from the ice cream guy and a lack of empathy from the teacher. Absolutely. And, yeah. she, she leaves her community that is all about empathy for her. Everyone in her community knows ASL because her mother was deaf and they're mm-hmm. all like communicating in a way that shows they care about her. And that's why I think the fact that Fisk never learned is, yeah. is real evidence to the fact that he does not know how to love like, yes. like I, 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 not that like every person in a person's life that is deaf has to learn ASL, but like if he, he's been, he's been in her life, her entire life, 20 years, 20, yeah. 25 years. And like, he's never learned and she calls him out for it. Um, and, and you know, like he, he invents that. I thought it, it seems like such a great moment when he invents the, he brings that, the, the contact that allows her to yeah. hear him. I thought it was so cool, but then also it's like, keep spending his money instead of actually taking the time to learn. Yeah, I think that's the thing is like, you, you know, the stories you hear about like kids with rich parents where it's like, you know, daddy tries to buy my love and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I think sometimes it can be a, a sign of a real lack of affection and all. But I think like, you know, I, I, I had this with my parents a little bit, my father, you know, where I did think it was, you know, you learn that money is often the way to solve problems. And I think to me, the that technology, which I definitely want to talk about, is a part of it. But another part of it is, you know, she gets in trouble with the police and she calls him and he shows up like an hour later. It's clearly that same night. And he has with him an interpreter who he is comfortable talking to about – talking to Maya about some of the criminal parts of what he's doing mm-hmm. at a very early moment. And clearly, he doesn't trust that interpreter entirely as we find out later um, when he has her killed. But – to me, what that showed was is that he was very conscious of the fact that there was a member of his family who he needed to be able to communicate with, and he had taken proactive efforts to be ready at a moment's notice to do that. But as we found out, it, he did it by throwing money at the situation instead of actually learning. Mm-hmm. And for me, I 
I think this is so important, and that it like I think if you just write off that as oh he doesn't really care about Maya, that's why he used the technology instead. It's all wrong. Yeah, and part of why this is so important to me, and here let's get into the representation of it a bit. And again, I want to point out I am not deaf myself. Um, I am disabled, which is not exactly the same, but has a lot of overlaps. A lot of deaf people are very adamant that deaf is not a disability, but it's a different way of being physical in the world. That. Uh, you have often heard me say, I think I've said it on on the MCU cast, I've said it on my own podcast a bunch of times, that I and a lot of other disabled people are often very frustrated with the idea that we get represented in like superhero shows, science fiction shows, fantasy shows, but then very quickly people use the science fiction technology or the magic to basically erase our disability to the point where the character is not going through any of the things a disabled person really would go through. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of becomes like, eh, well, this isn't really our yeah. story anymore. What they did with that machine is the single best example I have ever seen of saying, this is science fiction, so we're going to use technology that no one's thought of, but it's not going to be to erase the disability. It's going to be to better bridge the gap to help to say, you know, help other people better make a world that disabled people can better function in or deaf people can better function in. Again, there's not being the same thing, but in a way that doesn't erase the disability. And it meant so I, – I cried during that scene. Mm. And I think it's brilliant that they could both show that and be like, hey, like clearly I think deaf people were, were working with them to be like, no, 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 don't make – she already said to Hawkeye that she doesn't want technology. She doesn't think being deaf is bad. It's mm-hmm. just different. Don't make the technology to fix her deafness. Make the technology to fix the fact that he doesn't know how to communicate with her. You know? Yeah. Um, like, to me, it would be the equivalent if, like, you know, Tony Stark or some other, like, super – you know, maybe um, Riri Richards or someone like that were to invent – Riri Williams, I'm yeah, sorry. Williams. You know, you have a character in a wheelchair. <laughs> give them something where, like, they can press a button and, like, nanotech will shoot out and create a ramp to go up to any step. Right, you know? right. Like – amazing technology that doesn't exist in our own world, but it's still not about like fix erasing the disability. It's just about making the world more accessible to the mm. disabled person. Yeah. So uh, to me, it was so brilliant that they could both do that, but also then as a further beat to the story, be like, yeah, this is amazing tech and this is a much better representation way of doing it. But also it's a sign of the, the brokenness of their relationship that mm-hmm. – he still doesn't want to just – he wants to throw money at the problem and buy the tech instead of just actually learning how to communicate with her. Yeah. It's it's a really, really complex and interesting moment because the first – thought, my first thought watching it was like, this is such an amazing overture that he mm-hmm. like – that he made this device that like can communicate, but it still isn't him learning. It isn't him taking the time. It's him throwing money at the problem. I, I And also like – Watching it, I had a real sense of like, is this a, is this, hold on, what's that noise? Sorry, there's a truck beeping outside. Okay. Which is weird. I'm not hearing it, so. It's weird because I'm not near the street at all. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I think they must be backing up my driveway to deliver a package yeah. or something. But like, it's, it's, it's funny that I, I don't ever hear trucks and I'm in my office that is intentionally the furthest away from the street, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, um. Oh, you're saying that? Oh, uh, oh, yeah. I I had a real sense of this could be. I don't know if that kind of technology exists in the world at all, like or or Mm -hmm. could or has. But um, 
it, I got a real sense of this could be a Star Trek communicator situation where like yeah. they they created Star Trek communicator and then 30 years later they had flip phones for the same reason because those mm-hmm. geeks were watching that show. Uh, that that's that technology seems so doable. It's just animations over a like uh, over an augmented reality situation with uh, with easy translation software like you could do that like the right the right person could probably put that together in a fairly quick amount of time i was like man this is totally a doable right thing and i was like wow that's cool and I, if it doesn't exist i can't imagine someone didn't see that and go that's very doable and i could do that yeah. tomorrow you know i thought that was very cool but but it did rev- the revelation about the characters is what's most important and what one thing if you notice too he does use sign throughout the show but only very manipulative phrases like yeah. we are family, you know, like he's just like, he uses these, like, I love you, Maya, like stuff like that. Just like he uses them in the most manipulative way, only phrases that, and I don't even think, I genuinely think he wants to be in her life. He wants love from her, but he doesn't know how to give love and yeah. he doesn't know how, uh, how to not be manipulating and just trying to get what he wants out of her, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's, I think, at least the last question I want to ask you, and then let's talk more about Echo herself. I think that, yeah, like, I I think it's easy to write him off as he never really loved her. He's just using her. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that one of the things that is, that we are seeing Kingpin at a time when he is still carrying he's still very more conflicted about what he did to his father. And a part of him still feels an awful lot of guilt about that. And and like what mm. I took away from that very end scene is that she, she heals his pain, but a lot of the pain that she heals is, the like I said, the guilt that he has about that. Like I think even in, in that scene with the ice cream vendor, not that he regrets it, but it's kind of like the like, ugh, okay, I kind of lost control of myself. Yeah. This is maybe not the best. I, I don't want I, it's like I don't want to see Maya at my worst, you know, it's in the, some ways. It's the monster that he is and that he yeah. that he like it's the it's the Jekyll to his hide or whatever, or the hide to his Jekyll. I don't know. Yeah. Um he he I, he's scared he both like knows that he uses that side of himself and needs that side of himself, but also I think he's obviously ashamed of that side of himself. Um, and that's why Echo right. is so special to him because she saw it and didn't shy away. Exactly. Yeah, she doesn't. And that's where yeah. I think that the – I think you're right that in some ways I think Echo may have made him even more of a villain uh, because mm. she takes away his guilt. She takes away his shame and that kind of tells him, no, you did – you protected your mother. You did the right thing. Hmm. You can protect the city in the same way. That's a really interesting interpretation. I took it very differently but I – I, I took it as she got rid of his pain, and I have no idea what that means for him. Like, yeah, a, a Fisk without his pain, without his trauma informing all of his decisions, and without him basing everything on that powerless little boy, and see, that's why he seeks power. Um, I yeah, I don't I don't know who is Fisk without that, and and like I don't yeah. know, and that's what I think is such so fascinating about ending the show this way. Um, both there and ending the show with the mayor thing. It's like, this could go so many different ways and like her healing of him could mean so many things, but I, I don't know what it means. And I, and I like, I'm completely enraptured by the idea of finding out, like I'm so yeah. into it. I'm so into it as well. 
Let's talk about Maya. Let's talk about Echo then. And nice, simple, easy, ethical question. Is Maya Lopez a hero? Not yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, she clearly... I, okay. Lots of things. I, <laughs> I, I've been saying not yet all season, but obviously this last yeah. episode, I've just watched the last episode, so I'm kind of reframing everything. Um, we watched it late last night and casted about it. Um, I think clearly the ending, she is taking heroic actions um, to save her family. But that is, that in itself, I don't think shows heroism fighting for the people you that you specifically care about. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily make you a hero. And I think she's a bit of an anti-hero. Clearly she's done some terrible things. Uh, She's turned over a new leaf. It seems in the way she saved her family, but at the end she's her healing of Fisk is both a beautiful thing because it's, her choosing to use this power. She can, she has these glowy hands that she can either mm-hmm. fight with or like hurt people with or heal people with. And she chooses to heal in that moment. And I think that's freaking beautiful. I love yeah. it. But in that, in that thing, she says, you are my uncle. Like, so, so is her doing that a real choice of from empathy or is it a choice from uh, like, another person that she just needs in her life that she has, has always known as her uncle and she wants to see him bettered, you know, wants to see him healed. She doesn't want to hurt him. Uh, I think, I think one thing that that scene reveals is Fisk was right when he said, I saw the look on your face. You were happy to see that I was alive. Um, And like, I think she was, I think she, she's, she did it in a rash moment, but like she cares about Fisk, which makes this relationship and all of her decisions way more complicated than just the hero did the thing. The hero, the hero didn't just turn the other cheek. You know, it's not the hero yeah. turned the other cheek story. I do think that she had a very Luke Skywalker moment with the hammer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is you. Y- strike me down you know like like the the emperor is he's playing the emperor and uh and vader when he says you know kill me with this hammer and you'll be free um because really that will just cause her to forever be in the cycle of violence that hammer scene Mm -hmm. is so fascinating to me because it's here's the hammer kill me right now and you'll be free and he said i had to do it i had to do it to be free do you think fisk is free no, he's no. still in that freaking bedroom yelling about his father beating his mother. And that's because he just accepted the cycle of violence and continued it. Now, he was a victim at that point. His mother was a victim. He did, but he never healed from those things. I think yeah. that's what the healing Maya gave him is supposed to represent. But I just don't know what it means for the future. I just think so much of this. Yeah. I, I, lo- I love it. I love it all. I love it all. I love what you said there, but the only difference I think is, and this is where I think it's he's more like Vader than he is the Emperor. I I don't think Kingpin in any way thinks he's going to live through. Like I think Kingpin is both kind of inviting her into the cycle that he wants to be free of. Yeah. Oh yeah. No. I think, no. I agree. I, I think I, a part of it is because he is somewhat like he is like I think he is so hurt by the idea that something with this what he saw as a loving like familiar relationship has been so broken that there's a part of him that's like yeah if you are in some ways it's a perfect test where he's like 
I don't want to live if Maya, the person I thought was my family, hates me that much. And so this is the way to test it. If you hate me enough to kill me, then I don't want to be alive and I want mm. to be dead. Oof. You know? And I think that's the like – and it, yeah, and it's – you're right. It's, it's just – oh, it's – oh, this is – and like I like the Disney, I think the Disney Plus shows have been good. Wandavision was great, you know. Mm-hmm. I really love some other things, but this is the kind of like, like, and then I know people who are out there who are like, oh my god, there wasn't enough fight scenes. There wasn't this. There wasn't mm. that. To me, this is the like deeply ethically rich stuff that I love so much. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. The only the only I, thing. Go ahead. I, I was just say, and I love what you said about being a hero, hero because yeah, to me, the two things that most make someone a hero are. One, that they're willing to recognize the difference between trying to do the right thing versus acting out of vengeance and, mm-hmm. and you know, that kind of thing. And to me, I think that's the fundamental Star Wars question, which once again, you bashed on Star Wars on uh, uh, Star Trek, a recent episode of Star Trek Quest and uh, Star Trek Universe podcast. <laughs> I have a, I have a uh, corrective email to send to you about that that we'll get to another time. But um, I, don't that, even, I, mean, I don't even remember. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Just flows out know, of me, you know. I'm so angry let at the, you. Let the hate flow. Let the are. hate flow freely. <laughs> no, yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the Thanos Wanda moment right there, and I'm Wanda. Um, but like um, – well, actually, that means something worse in today's world. But anyway, you know what I mean. Um, uh, Doctor Strange and all that put aside. The, the point being that I think the other important part of being a hero is, yeah, that that is you're not just defending your own. You're, you're not just defending yourself and your family. You're defending the defenseless. You're defending people who aren't part yes. of your group. To and me, he, I think what, go ahead. To me, I think what was so brilliant about this was it was like 75% of a hero origin story. Yeah. Because it is her moving past her desire for vengeance. It is her, her um, you know, moving to a, a better place and accepting that healing can be a power. But she's not quite there of like, I'm going to go save a whole bunch of people who I don't care about because bad things are going to happen. And I think it's what I, – I think in a lot of ways, she's going to wind up kind of being – to take the Batman thing again, she's going to kind of wind up being Catwoman to Daredevil's Batman, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of the like much more morally gray, much less of a hero, but probably willing to do a heroic thing in part because of like her connection to Daredevil and Dare- and Matt Murdock inspiring her, like, not even inspiring her, but like helping to, you know, because yeah. I think she's in a like one of the things I loved most, like, and, and th- that makes it sound like I think her story is in service to Matt Murdock's. I don't think that's the case at all. I think she has her own story that I like that she's not just mm-hmm. a run of the mill hero now. And sorry, I've been going on for a while. This is just the last thing I'll say. Um, I love that when they talk about all the different parts of the different Choctaw warrior women who they've been highlighting, that one of the things they mention is ferocity. Because mm-hmm. you almost never hear ferocity talked about as a positive trait for a character. It's kind of like a berserker thing. <laughs> if there's one character in the entire MCU who I would say has like embodied ferocity, it's Kingpin. Mm. You know? So I just thought that was such an interesting like – She's not going to be your normal hero. She's going to tap into things that we're not comfortable with heroes tapping into, but she's someone we're going to root for in a lot of ways. Yeah. Man, I love that whole thing of uh, cunning, strategy, ferocity, love. Those are your those are your tools. I just loved it. Like those are your tools that you get from your ancestors, from this line of women that you come from. I thought mm-hmm. that was so freaking cool and just like a way of stating her like – the core of her character in a really non cheesy way. I, I, in some ways I, I, obviously some people will think that's cheesy. Her 
dead mother appearing to her and like having an entire speech. I keep, uh, yeah, I, I, I kept trying to like reframe a lot of what was going on through like, because I really like a show when it like dances on the line of, is this religious experience really happening or is it not? Right. You know what I mean? And this show, when, when she finally like spread her powers out to her, uh, her cousin and her grandma and they started fighting, I was like, Oh no, this is happening. This is fully yeah. like, they fully embraced <laughs> everything up until that moment was like, even when she pushed the train, it, it was like, that could have just been, her believing that that's what allowed her to out of that situation. It could have been a change in the, you know, the train yeah, the itself. Adrenaline rush yeah, combined yeah. with. But combined with the train changing direction slightly or something, you know, it could have been anything. And, uh, but until that, and when, the, when the grandma starts beating up the thugs, I was like, okay, uh, that's not really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the, that, that I can't, I can't headcanon this anymore, but um, uh I- yeah. I, it was one of my only quibbles. I did wish that they'd kind of done a little bit of a force ghost thing with Maya's mother because mm. in a show, granted, comic movies have gotten me very cynical about is someone actually dead, but particularly in a show where someone who was shot in the face is still alive, when her mother just showed up, a part of me was like, wait, is her mother just still alive? Like in an actual yeah. literal sense? Because yeah, again, totally. someone was shot in the head. So maybe she lived through the car accident somehow. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, it was really well done. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I in the middle of it, I, and I said this on, on MCU cast last night, in the middle of it, I said, what is this Disney shit? Because, and I didn't even mean it in a negative way. I meant yeah. it in a... I was looking for a dark, gritty show about Kingpin and Echo, like just trying to kill each other. And suddenly I am weeping because a character is talking to her dead mother and like talking about the generations and how they empower her. And it was just so like, it was such a beautiful moment. I, I don't, I did when I say Disney shit, I just mean like it was happy. Like it was just so yeah. freaking happy. And like, uh, it, I had a hard time, like, uh, yeah, getting back from that, like I, I found myself crying through most of the last half of the show. Um, when all when all of her uh, another Star Wars connection, and this this is the last mention of Star Wars was me like referencing Star Wars. This is me making uh-huh. fun of Star Wars. But um, how in the world did they pull off that scene where all the ancestors appear better than Star Wars did? Like I was so much more emotional when her. It's because it was personal. Like I, I realized why, but it was her her family appears behind her as basically, as you say, force ghosts, but you know, without the blue, uh, translucence, um, all the force ghosts appear behind her to show the support of her ancestors. They do the same thing in, uh, you know, the, the, the last was, what's the last one called? The rise of Skywalker, rise of Skywalker. Um, they do the same thing, but it like, it, it's so impactful here. You know, it's the same moment, but it's so freaking good here. Um, and it makes me, I'm so curious for Maya's character going forward because does she have powers now is, is one of my know. questions or is she just, they say at moments of great um, trial, they, they say it throughout the thing that at moments of great trial, they come to people in their, in their, their ancestors and give them power to protect their family sort of thing. Yeah. That's, that's sort of how they go with. And like, that means that if that, that, that holds, I don't really want to see Maya become just, uh, you know, captain glowy hands that can do cool Mm -hmm. things and heal whoever she wants and do whatever she needs. Like, I kind of want these powers of hers to be rare. I want her to continue to use her, her other things, the cunning, 
the strategy, the, the fierceness. And I want her to like be awesome because she's Maya. And then occasionally, Oh, this is one of those moments. This is a, this is one of the moments where her, and she calls on her ancestors to do some big feat, you know? And that's always, I want it always to have the kind of impact it had here. I don't want it to become like, that's just what she does in every fight, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, in some ways, her story reminds you a lot of Jessica Jones, uh, especially in how Jessica Jones similarly was like, I don't want to be a hero for a long time. Mm -hmm. And we know that Jessica Jones has, like, super strength and can kind of fly, sort of, kind of, maybe. But, like, most of her story is about situations where those powers won't actually fix things, you know? And I think kind of a similar way. Um, It's the same way I don't want, like, you know, Danny Rand or Riri Williams to, like, rebuild her prosthetic and make it totally different, you know? Yeah. and just about that, I um, first about the powers, and then I'll get to the amputee part. Um, I have been part of why that first few moments threw me. I do know there's an awful. I'm not native by any means myself, but I do know there's a really long, awful history of white people kind of you know mythologizing and like being like, oh, you know, native indigenous wisdom, and like they have all these like mystical powers. And so when I saw some of that, I was a little like. You're not going that direction, are you? And I think what becomes very clear as you go further is that, no, everything about the Choctaw connections that she has is very authentic and is very much based in their mythology and their understanding of things and their kind of visions of stuff. And I think that what what I had to keep reminding myself was I have an idea of what it is supposed to look like when a dead person comes back to speak to someone either just in their mind or in kind of a mystical supernatural way or in something that's kind of a combination of it, I have an idea of what it looks like when the ancestors speak to you. And my idea comes out of a very particular perspective and mythology set. That's Mm. not what this show is dealing with. And the Choctaw Nation itself, like there's a little thing at the very end of the last episode that says that they worked in partnership with them. If you go to the Choctaw Nation's own website, um, it has like a long thing about here's all the stuff that Echo draws upon and how connected it was. And I think it is just – I talk about representation all the time and how important it is. And I really think this show is a master class in, in how you do that right, in how you really do it. Mm. Not that it – you know, as the – anti-woke people say, like, not that it, like, obliterates her character or obliterates any of the amazing story beat moments we get or just the great story, but it really felt like they did so much to make this very authentic to that background, to that history, and and to kind of invite others in, but without being like, we're not going to, like, dumb it down for non-native folk. We're going to tell you the story as it would be from this perspective. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's very cool. And I, you know, I I didn't give them that any thought, but I, I do like... I, um... I, I definitely like had to trust. I know they got creators and consultants on the show that um, were putting putting a lot of effort in to try to make it uh, more authentic. And so mm-hmm. I, I I admit I, I've been giving it a lot of credit for just like okay, I'm assuming this is all authentic. I'm not I'm not doing a lot of digging myself. Um, yeah. But I but I, I, I I'm I, I'm hopeful and just based on what I've heard the creators say and stuff, it seems like they're they're really drawing upon. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're myths, you know. And I think I, I'm not native. So like you, I'm kind of like as an outsider, I'm trusting, but I'm also hearing that. I'm hearing from a lot of deaf people and hard of hearing people that like they really felt very similar and how mm-hmm. authentic it was. I can say as an amputee, 
I don't speak for the entire amputee community. Uh, I already had a Twitter argument with one person who was like, I'm an amputee, but wokeness is bullshit. And like, I don't want to be represented. I just want stories of, you know, good. Okay, <laughs> fine. But I think that like, and I've certainly heard a lot of my amputee colleagues talk about this. It, it was far, I, I felt 100% seen by this character. That's and awesome, man. I think it's it really speaks to intersectionality and the interestingness of like, this is a deaf character. This is a native character. This is a woman. I'm not any of those three things. I can't say I understand the character experience, but just the – like I'll give you one basic example. Misty Knight I think is another one of those things where it's like, yes, she loses an, a limb, but it's not the amputee experience that anyone else knows right. because – her arm is cut off, and like three days later, Danny Rand and his corporation have made her this amazing high-tech arm. Mm-hmm. Um, for most amputees, um, and, and I should say, by the way, that like amputee is not the perfect term for um, people who are missing limbs, because some people are born without that. Um, in this case, the character is the amputee, and the but like there are people who use prosthetic limbs who are you know similar. But for anybody who does lose their their limb in any kind of traumatic way. Um, it takes like think about any injury and how much it swells. Like that entire area mm-hmm. swells up and is also incredibly tender. And also often there's muscle grafts and skin grafts that are needed. The idea that you're gonna put anything on that for weeks, let alone months, mm-hmm. it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And so the fact that little girl Maya, when she and her father are leaving Oklahoma to go back to New York, it's clearly been a couple of weeks. Like her mother has been buried, she's out of the hospital. And she still has her stump bandaged and she's not mm. using a prosthetic leg yet. I was like, that's what representation looks like. You know, that – and then stuff like about how when her leg gets damaged and her grandfather has to help her rebuild it and the first version he makes isn't perfect and so she limps on it. Like, mm. just – there were so many things like that and then – because to me, what I want to see is kind of my experience at its best, you know? And so – I don't think I know how to have a fight where at some point I cock my prosthetic limb like a weapon and hold it back so that I release it with even more force. Right. But she did that. And it was freaking awesome. <laughs> it made for a great fight scene. And it felt like, yeah, is that stretching the bonds of credulity – stretching the bounds of credulity? Sure. Do I care? No. Because it, it – any less realistic than, um, you know, Tony Stark building the first Iron Man suit in the cave? Mm-hmm. Like, you know. So, yeah, I just – everything about it really spoke to – they really were being serious about we want this to be a comic book story. We want to have fun with it, but we're not going to – we're going to tell a story about an actual amputee and understand what that experience is like. And it just made me so, so happy and, and feel so, so seen. That's awesome, man. I I I found myself thinking more about it with the, uh, with the, the deaf experience just because it's so – uh, it's, it's, it's very, um, different from my own. And so there were a lot of things on the show where I was like, um, man, I, I, like, I didn't even realize that something would be different. Does that, does that make sense? Like, oh, yeah, you don't even totally. realize that this would be different in your life. If this, if you had this, um, disability or, uh, not disability or uh, difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so I, I love to hear that, that you felt that way with the, um, the, the amputee portion of it when she the one the one part I wanted to ask you about and did it seem to stretch the bounds of credulity uh when um when the grandfather was able to fix her leg 
Did that seem a little like far fetched? It did to me, and I don't know. I just know that like there are various levels of prosthesis, and yep. like some can do a lot more than others. Clearly, the one that Maya has been using in her fight sequences is are is amazing. Um, but the fact that her uncle or her her, her um, grandfather was able to do it. And in a fairly quick manner and make one that in a, in a few seconds later, she was jumping off the house with, I was yep. like, that seems to strain that, but like the strain realism, but like I'm going with it. But like you said, yeah. it's not much different than, a, uh, you know, Tony Stark building it in the cave, building Iron Man in the cave. So this is actually a great question and gets it, I think, a part of the prosthetic experience that most people don't understand. And like, I hadn't even thought of it in these terms, but you're right. It's one more way they get it very right. There are two parts to every prosthetic, um, or at least every prosthetic leg, because that's what I know best about. There is the actual foot itself, and then there's the socket, which is what your leg plugs into and connects to. Okay. The leg itself is incredibly – it can be very basic or it can be very high-tech. And like you think about um, that South African runner who then also I think like killed his girlfriend or like did something horrible but like he he ran in the olympics on these prosthetic legs mm-hmm. that basically like gave him a huge advantage and there's some interesting conversations about because like like even my prosthetic leg which is still like it's what insurance will pay for it's the high end of what insurance will pay for because i'm very privileged and i have a very good insurance it has better shock absorbers than my car does mm. like uh and i fully believe that wilson fisk could Pay, would and could pay for the very top level of like foot that she could have. And like to give an example, there are times where she like drops down and is fine with it. I that would probably be painful for me because just I don't have quite a high quality. So like if I drop from a distance and my foot lands, it like creates a reverberation that goes up into my stump and is quite painful. Um, but I fully believe that she has the foot that that's not a problem with. The foot then attaches to a socket and the socket is, you know, it's it's a plaster mold that is then it's built of to um that fits around your your stump and then there's a at the bottom of the socket is the piece that connects that to the foot. Um they were very careful to show that the foot itself was not damaged. Mm-hmm. It was the socket and the way that the socket connects to the foot because Part of why I have trouble walking a lot is that, in part because I'm heavier, this is not a fat shaming thing in the slightest, it's just the way bodies work, the more fat there is on on something, and, and my stump has a good deal of fat, not just because of my own weight, but because of um, just, it, I have a very short knee, and so just the way it's, it must, it, there's also the biological details, but the point is, it's hard to get a very good, perfect fit. And so it wobbles a little bit. So like if I if I kicked someone, it'd probably knock my whole leg off off of alignment. Maya has a very well made one that fits her perfectly. When it's damaged, as it is in that train train scene, it, it's very hard for her, and that's why. Um, and he can fix it to some extent. But if you notice, even after what her grand- grandfather does initially. It doesn't work very well. Mm-hmm. And she is still limping somewhat. It's only when she gets the finished version of it that he can. And the first couple times I got prosthetic limbs made, I was expecting it to be this super high tech, you know, experience. And the foot is that, but the actual making of the socket and everything else, it's just a guy with screwdrivers and pliers, like mm. fuddling around the way someone would under the hood of like a 1970s car. You know, it's very much a 
you know, like grease under your fingernails kind of mechanic experience. Mm. It's not a high tech thing. That's really cool that they were they they captured that. That's that's yeah. really cool and clearly uh, they knew what they were doing and knew what they were talking about. That's awesome because I I saw yeah. that and I was like. I just know these things are these things are complicated, and it seems weird that he's just be able to rebuild it at all, much less get it working so quickly. But yeah, that's awesome yeah. that they that they were careful with that. That's super cool. It is, and I'll, I'll say like, I think the implication is supposed to be in the same way that like the family learned ASL. I don't think any random mechanic could do it, but I think a mechanic who really learned and studied how to make prosthetics could do that. Yeah. And so in my head, it's like, oh, of course, he's been making prosthetics for her all of her life. He knows how to do this. Mm. Then I realized, wait a minute. Yeah, he, he hasn't, hasn't been in her contact life, yeah. with her for 20 years. So I was like, okay. Well. That that part. But I can understand him being like, I want her to be able to come back. Plus, other natives are going to lose their legs and are probably not going to have good health insurance. It, to me, I have to headcanon a bit. Yeah. But I can very easily headcanon that he decided to learn how to fix prosthetics. Mm-hmm. A, because in the back of his mind, he's hoping she'll come back one day, but mostly so that he can help other people in his community and thus had the skills ready. Yeah. And I was curious um, about that, too. One of the things we talked about on the MCU cast is why they never really get into why the um, uh, the, the, the grandparents get divorced. And yeah. we kind of uh, just headcanon slash talked about how it's very possible the trauma of losing their daughter – um, and 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 having yeah. to deal with that caused this rift, but also the fact that the grandmother refused to have contact with Maya's father and like you know writing them off. That all of that seems very traumatic and very hard to navigate and very hard to make those choices as a unit, um, as like a married couple. So I, I got I got curious about the possibility, and I'm, I don't know, but it's possible that she, he may have had more contact with her than the grandmother had. And clearly yeah. when she went to town, he was the one she went to. Like, he, yeah. he, she didn't go to the... So it's possible that he has worked on her leg before, even if it was just when she was younger or as a child. Um, yeah. Then once she... Because it seemed like Bonnie also... Po- they, they were very unclear with when Bonnie and Maya stopped talking. Like, it was, it was yeah. clear that the grandmother didn't want them talking, but then after the death of her father... It seemed like she didn't want to talk to any of her family at all because of uh, the dark road she was taking. You know, like it it seemed that way, but they never are very explicit about it because we never really have evidence one way or the other what happened between the time she left for New York and the time that uh, that she comes back. Like, did they have any contact for those 20 years or whatever? And it's not real clear. Yeah, I think it's really true, and I think there's a, there's room to explore it. But I also felt like, yeah, I don't exactly know, but but it, it all makes sense. To yeah, me, you but know? leaving gaps in the information allows us to do things like yeah. headcanon that, yeah, maybe the grandfather worked on it a few times, like you know, whatever. Like maybe they came back to visit twice, and he got to do a little bit of tinkering, and that informed his ability later. And like you said, a good story is such that you don't get caught up in the exact details. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Like until you go I, on a podcast and then we get caught up in the details regardless. <laughs> exactly. And that's the point And we enjoy it. <laughs> There's so much more we can say about this. And I'll let you have a couple of last words. But I just want to say, because uh, we barely talked about the family, but I just want to say the actress who plays Bonnie, mm-hmm. who I know also is the voice actress for a native character. In yes. What if, that I have not seen yet, but I want to I see it. But <laughs> there's one scene in particular that I was like – Three minutes is not enough to win an Emmy, but I think this may be one of the best three minutes of acting I'll ever see in in television this year, Mm. where, you know, if you're interpreting, 
in theory, oh, you're supposed yeah. to be kind of like dispassionate about the information you're passing back and forth because you have to be because you have to be able to translate it. And so the scene when she is the interpreter as Kingpin is explaining that he is going to kill Bonnie, like she is having to interpret a threat to her own life yeah. as though she's not in it. And just the the way that the actress was able to carry the horror and the the upsetness on her face without losing a beat in translating. Mm-hmm. And that she was having to struggle so much to do it, but she did it. I was just like, I, I can't imagine what that moment is like, but I feel like I'm seeing it in this acting performance. Yeah. And it was just so well done. It, it, the terror on her face and the like urgency at which she's signing because she needs Mai to understand what's going on. And one of my favorite things about that scene is unrelated to her acting, which I agree with you is, is stellar. Um, but one of my favorite things about that scene is she never hears the third phrase. Uh, she never has it interpreted because there's, there's this really rhythm to the scene where Fisk says something, cuts over to Bonnie signing it. Fisk says something, cuts over to Bonnie signing it. And then Fisk says something. And as she's turning to like, see what he's saying, a, one of the thugs come in and comes in and punches her. And it's like a very, like, oh, yeah. like he gets interrupted. And it's another one of those moments where like, oh, the fight scene started and we as the audience and Maya were in this experience of just not finding out. We just don't get to find out because the interpreter wasn't given time. And it's just like a really yeah. small moment. But it's like one of those things where, well, if you just don't have the interpreter available in that moment, you don't get it. You know, and it was it, yeah. it was another just like great moment of that experience. You know, it's funny. I was talking with a friend about how kind of one thing we liked about it is it, it is really fun in the more traditional MCU when, you know, a hero does something great and then has a really quippy line, you know, like Peter Quill or someone like that says something really funny as he finishes a fight. Mm-hmm. But like it would make no sense for that to happen in this because that's not what she's doing. But also I'm realizing like while she's using her fists, she can't come up with a quippy line, you know, like she could never be Spider-Man mm-hmm. because like the way she talked is also the way she fights. Oh, so, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, I, so, I, I thought a lot about that when she's tied, when her hands are tied behind her back, because it's not only, uh, not only is she physically tied, but she's barred from communicating as well by tying yeah, her hands. Yeah, she's basically gagged as well. Yeah, without and, gagging, she's gagged. I, I think that was really, uh, it just and, these moments you don't think about when you don't right. live that experience. And it's so cool to see that on screen and just get that, oh, oh yeah, that's totally different than my experience. That's different. And I would have never ever even thought about it. And like, that's. To me, it's also a great counterpoint where there she's tied up in a way that her disability makes harder. Contrast that to when she's tied up by the ankles. Right. And by the way, when you can – like that separation I talked about between leg and socket, that's how she gets out is she separates her leg from her socket. Like Mm. tying up someone's legs when you're kind of a Mr. Potato Head and can, you know, pick those parts (laughs) apart, like doesn't work as well. And so, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. I don't even know if that was intentional. But having one scene where she's tied in a way that makes her other disability even harder, but another scene where she's tied up and because of her disability, she can get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's, it's just so really good. cool. And, and, you know, the way she fights, as you mentioned, with like cocking her leg back and springing it forward, it is, you know, it's the uh, – and when the train crushes her leg and the fact that she that leg's already gone. And it's still, it's still an important thing because she still has to get her prosthetic repaired, but it is – 
uh, is, you know, obviously not as painful and not as, uh, not as yeah. traumatizing. Um, the, the, uh, it's these moments in the show that show her disability for being a advantage at times too. And it's the whole, like, you yeah. know, it used to be a phrase where you say, not disabled, differently abled. And I'm sure people use it at times, but like, this was a, just a real example of that throughout the show where her, um, her abilities, uh, as an amputee were like different in different situations that's helped her or hurt her. And it's sort of this, like, uh, it, it just is showing how that experience can be just so different from ours, uh, from, yeah. from mine. Um, and yeah, I, I thought it was very, very cool. I mean, as someone who gets to park wherever I want, whenever I want, because of my disability, like, I totally got that. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, I would ask if you have any last thoughts, but the fact is, if people want to hear Matthew Carroll's last thoughts on MCU and first thoughts and middle thoughts, there's five episodes now mm -hmm. um, on the MCU podcast, which is fantastic. I'll give you a chance to talk about it uh, in just a second. But is there any last things you want to – and we will be doing a bonus section. It'll be quick, like 10 minutes because it's gone pretty long, but we will be doing a bonus section about – more of the defenders coming into the MCU and kind of our hopes and thoughts about that uh, or into this version of the MCU. But um, Matt, any of the last things you want to say as part of this conversation? Oh man, not really. I just appreciate you having me and uh, it's good to, good to be here. Uh, uh, hadn't been on uh, the, the superhero ethics in a long time. And uh, it's, it's always good to be here, man. And uh, I just, uh, yeah, I love this show. I think this show is really, really cool. And I love that it, uh, is so meaty for representation and so meaty to have new conversations. And so like, just, it's just really, really a great show. And, and as you mentioned, shows with ethical questions, I think the defenders were particularly good with that. And yeah. this show again, I think is just hitting it out of the park with a lot of that. And I, some of it, I don't even understand the repercussions of yet. And we're going to have to wait and see. And I think that's really cool too. The fact that they're trusting the future storytellers in, in the spotlight arena to pick up the ball and run with Maya story and run with fifth story and see where it goes from here. You know? Yeah, I definitely think so. I'm, I'm nervous about that just because with the MCU, so much has been like started and then canceled. And I do know there is a strong fan reaction of dislike to the show so far. I think there's a lot of fans who absolutely love it. I think it's a strong majority. But there are, like I said, I'm sure some people have legitimate reasons. But there's also some folks who are – I had one person who was like, oh, this is all woke nonsense. Who's trying to convince me that as an amputee, I should hate this show. Mm. And his reasoning was, if you remember, she loses her leg – in the car accident and um, it happens because like, you know, when the car breaks, there's this like large shard of glass that goes into her leg. And that is very realistic in terms of like, if you cut the femoral artery that goes to the leg and like that leg loses blood, like it's going to die pretty quickly. And like, you will have to amputate it. Uh, people I know were coming after me and being like, no, but like, a windshield doesn't break like that. A large piece of glass wouldn't come out like that. And so, therefore, everything about the show is ruined <laughs> and terrible. And I was like, look, maybe that's true about the windshield, but I just couldn't possibly care less. Like yeah. that. Um, but my, my point being with all that, given all of the dislike that it's generating, as well as just like some of the discussions around like the Marvels and other stuff – I am worried that we're not going to get as many of these stories as we want. Sure. Or it may well be that we get it entirely in Daredevil's story, which I think will be great. Mm -hmm. I hope Echo gets to be a big part of it. But yeah, I'm like you, I'm very excited. We'll talk more about that in the bonus section. Um, and just 
yeah, it just makes me really happy as a Marvel fan. And I'm now going to go back and watch What If. And Loki isn't my show, so I probably won't watch that, but I'll watch some other stuff too. Oh, man, so, I love Loki so that? much. I know that's our time yeah. travel difference, but man, I love yeah. Loki so much. I, it's Loki is a show built for me. Like the, the, yeah. the, um, and it, it, I, 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 I hope you I hope one day you'll get to see it and or all you decide to see it because I think it ends so beautifully and in in really well, cool way it just has some really coolness to it. I may well, but I also think that's another to me a part of this. Like this is going getting back to another topic because with you and I like mm-hmm. you and Paul we're really bad at ending things. Mm-hmm. Um, at least this time we're not trying to get the last word on each other in a, in a disagreement. Oh, which yeah. poor Jeff used to have to moderate those. Um, but like. <laughs> um, to me, I think one of the there's a difference between a large connected universe where all these individual stories happen, but like you're always remembering that's happening in a world after the blip, for example, you know, and like that's changed the world. That's different than everything is feeding into this larger overall plot, you know, and I think like if I found out that Wilson Fisk was somehow working for Kang in some way or, you know, like <laughs> that kind of thing, I'd be like, eh, I don't want this. Right. But – but yeah, I, I I I do really love that it is just the. I'm trying to think where in the world I was going with that. Um, what were we talking about right before this? Loki. Oh yeah. Um, so the point the point of that being, I think another advantage of that is if I don't need to watch every single thing to understand every single thing, mm-hmm. they can take more risks. Yeah, they can have a show like Loki, which time travel people will love. And isn't for me. Well, I, I, they might they might have a show that's just Matt Murdock and uh, She Hulk trying cases together, and they get in a fight once every three episodes. But it's just a lot legal drama, mm-hmm. and I love that. And a lot of other people won't. You know, yeah. like there's just so many things. Like we can have things that are not made for everybody in a lot in the spotlight. Yeah, universe. yeah, and I think that's that's what what I was saying earlier. I think we've all strived for this connected universe to be even more connected, but I think there's a balance to that connection. And I think that's something that we've we've known for a long time that there's a balance to the connection, but I think that they're they're recalibrating that right now at Marvel um because of the sort of lack of success of some of these because I don't think they've made when you, when you compare Phases four and five, people have talked about the overload or whatever, but when you compare phases four and five, um, there's not that much. I don't think there's more television than there was during the Defenders. I think it's probably mm-hmm. very similar uh, amount of television when you when you include Defenders and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and all that uh, and, and Runaways. And uh, but back then they let things be separate a little more. Yeah. And it's something I didn't like about it. I was like, why, why is yeah. it more connected? But now I'm like, you know what? They tried it. They tried to be more connected and they lost half their audience because like so many people were like, there's so many people out there like, like myself, that's a completist and I don't like watching the next thing till I saw the last thing. And so if, if a thing comes out and it's not really my thing and I fall off and I don't watch whatever, uh, then I feel like I've lost a rung in the ladder and the more connected things are, the more that is. And I think they're because more people feel that way. It's, it's, uh, it's good to have shows for different audiences. And I think they're, they're, they're moving towards that. I think. Yeah. I feel like 
the kind of three main um, universes that, like, you know, between the two of us and, like, your other podcast that we cover, Marvel, Star Wars, and Star Trek, are all wrestling with how to do this. You know, oh, for sure. the show, they, there's a lot of this conversation. And just, it's going to be fascinating to see how it all comes around. So, well, thank you again, Matt. Um, yeah, yeah. To our uh, members, you know, uh, $5 a month, you get uh, ad-free content, you get bonus content, um, and you help support us. It is fantastic. All the information about how to join is right there in the show notes. Please do so. Uh, but also, I-, I assume if you're listening to this, you probably already know about the MCU cast. I think it is the absolute premiere. Honestly, I think it's the premiere sh- like superhero podcast out there, but absolutely uh, the MCU one. Uh, Matt, tell us a little bit about uh, MCU cast and where people can find it. Thanks, man. It's very kind. Um, yeah, we, uh, we're at the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast everywhere you get podcasts. So if you like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we talk about it every week. Um, and, it, you know, it's just it always surprises me. Sometimes there's not content for a few weeks and I'm like, what will we talk about? And then we get on and we're like, there's always so much to talk about. There's so many yeah. ways to go with it. And honestly, a lot of that is is thanks to our listeners who write in a lot of things. And we get great feedback that like spurs on cool, con- excuse me, cool conversations that we would never would have had otherwise. And I think uh, I just I love being on the show. I love the community and I love uh, love love uh, making it for you, for you listeners out there. So yeah. if you like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, check us out. Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. And there is, of course, other podcasts that Matt's very involved with, where you can hear him give like good updates about news that's Ooh, happening yeah. in the multiverse. You can hear him commit heretical slander against Star Wars mm-hmm. while he's talking about another yep, yep. star show. Uh, give us like, a quick rundown about some of the other stuff you're on. Uh, yeah, one of the ones we're really, really focused on this year building up is uh, Multiverse News. Uh, and it is a week-to-week uh, week, week news story news show where we really put a ton of work in honestly like it's it's the most work intensive show we've done on uh, uh that i've done on the network because we uh actually like research and write the news up and like have ha- i i'm the sort of anchor on the show and i read read the news and then we discuss and have sort of a panel show about all the news stories that are going on that week and we we expand a little far beyond those three universes you mentioned. We do talk about all those, but we also get into everything else, uh, just in mostly in the geeky realm. But sometimes we're just talking about what's going on in the box office and what, mm-hmm. what like you know, Taylor Swift was big in the box office this year. Uh, you know, Barbie was big in the box office this year. So Barbenheimer and uh, Taylor Swift became common topics on the show. Like, yep. you know, it's, it's sort, awesome. sort of just whatever ha- is happening in pop culture, we'll kind of get into. And that go- even, even dip our toe into video games and stuff so it's just multiverse news any fic we say we're your your source for information about all your favorite fictional universes so that's one we're really trying to uh grow and we're really putting a lot of effort into so i hope you guys will check that one out too um and then everything else is at strandapanda.com we we have something for every every universe and every show probably at this point something's going on so yep yeah there's so much great stuff to check out there um, Strand and Panda just does so many wonderful things. There's Animation Deliberation, which does all the stuff about animated stuff. There's the Star Trek Universe podcast. Well, Star Trek is, is a yeah. There's the Star Trek Universe podcast. Mm-hmm. There's just so many good things you guys got going on. Thanks, man. Um, source Notes, which is all about like the books. Yeah, source, based source on. Pages. Source Pages. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, this is an Ethical Panda podcast. You can find this along with Star Wars Generations by going to theethicalpanda.com or by searching for us on the True Story FM 
uh, family web web uh, podcasts. Uh, love contact information. What do you think of Echo? Um, I already did one kind of quick reaction. This is a little bit more of a deeper, particularly for more of the the com- that was more focused on representation. This was more about like the comic book side of things. But would love to hear what you all have to say. Uh, all our contact is in the show notes. Please check all that out. Please really seriously consider be- becoming a member because it's such a good way to support us. Such a good way to help uh, keep things going, and you get a lot of great content. We're going to be starting a book club pretty soon for Star Wars, quite possibly for superhero ethics as well. Uh, so members stick around. On behalf of, but for everybody else, on behalf of myself and Matt, we have spoken. <laughs>